chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. You know what I miss, Blaine? I miss the good old days where this was fast and loose and we'd come up with a new intro every single time. You know, maybe we'd bring in some bubble wrap and pop it. These days we got to like introduce ourselves and be all professional and stuff. I know. You, I miss being young. <sighs> young and free. The world was our oyster. Welcome back, guys. This is the Ansons Podcast. And I'm Sam. I am Blaine. This is the beginning of a series that we have held off recording for a long time. And in fact, we've been trying to craft this series uh, f- the whole year. The problem that we have run into is that the more I read on this topic, the more I see how important it is to a person, the less I feel qualified to actually explain it. Mm. This is like the classic PhD candidate who just, there's always another book. And there's the more you know about something, the more you realize how little you actually know about the thing. Exactly. And we've just sort of had to That's why come. I try not to know much about anything, and I feel so good. I just feel it awesome. <laughs> We're finally sitting here in the studio because we think we need to give y'all something on in this category, and that even sort of giving you a push in the direction because what we are going to talk about today is anthropology, more specifically philosophical anthropology. And for our friend Eli, who yesterday said he doesn't know what that means, Blaine, what does philosophical anthropology mean for us today? Anthropology. Anthropos, man, human, maybe humanity, and then, you know, the old ology from the Logos pattern study the knowledge of. And it's the study of humanity. What are people? The background of this podcast is that every person has assumptions about reality, what the world is. Even if they're not aware of it. Yes. Almost especially if they're not aware of it. Let's not get the cart ahead of the horse there because I have some very interesting stuff on that. I just get excited. And the more your assumptions about reality correspond to Jesus's assumptions about reality, the better your life will be. It is better to know what the world actually is. It's better to have a view of the who, what, where, when, why, how of the world. It's better to have a view of that that actually corresponds to God's design. Unless the view that corresponds to God's design is more difficult and my view is easier than that sounds like I don't want it. I think it goes back to what we'll say is reality is your friend and that ultimately it doesn't help you to be wrong. People like the lion, the truth shall set you free. I'm more interested actually in, in Jesus was light and that light was the life of men, of humanity, and to go, whoa, in his life was 
in his life itself was a kind of illumination that, in which the world made sense. In order to get there, we're going to have to, I see us in this episode, laying a little bit of groundwork of what does it mean to have a worldview? What does it mean to uh, like see the world? I think that the first thing that I want to tell people is that your way of seeing the world isn't in any sense given or necessary. I remember I'm a sophomore in college and I asked a couple guys out of real curiosity, how do you think? And then... Wait, that was the end of the question? That was the question. How do you think my brain puts ideas together? Well, (laughs) that's actually a better, (laughs) that's a better answer than one guy said... I just, it just, I just do. Oh yeah. No, that's very honest though. That's, that's probably true for most people. I'm like, you want to think about a problem? I just do. I just react. I'm just constantly reacting. I just turn on the thinking factory. You and I were in the car the other day. We were talking about this and we're talking about that there are ways of seeing the world, uh, ways of being that are qualitatively distinct. And by qualitatively, my argument for qualitatively it goes you know to the concept of qualia substance of there's like a real thing there that's different and here here's the example let's say i am blaine in 2000 whatever when i'm 18 years old math is hard and i'm standing next to let's say Corey jacobson at that time very experienced elk hunter and we're looking at the mountains and uh, can can we actually say in any meaningful sense that we are looking at the exact same thing? And I would say no, because one of the interesting things in the debates about hunting is that a non-hunter tends to have a view of reality as a bunch of individual entities and wills. That So the first thing you see when you see a deer is an isolated Bambi. You see an isolated deer, you see a Bambi, right? Right. Uh, and I would say that the first thing a hunter sees is a relationship. Mm. But they just see a thing. They're like, ah. Oh. And to go, how could you kill that animal? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the first thing that most hunters are doing. If I, as a hunter, actually see a web of interconnected sacrificial relationships, then mm. I won't see the ind- individual death of a creature. I'll see... Uh, a whole ecology of sacrificing relationships. Right. So it was interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago when I shot a cow elk, uh, this small herd ended up running out of the trees and and standing there for a minute looking back for the, the cow that I had shot. And dad had a shot at these animals because they'd come out and they were waiting there. And he looked at them not as an a novice hunter. He looked at them as someone who was seeing the interconnectedness and he was able to go... Like, oh, that is a small group, a collection of mature females and younger animals. Like, I don't want to remove another mature animal for the sake of their health over the winter. I want them to thrive. And so I'm going to value in this moment, we already have some meat. I'm going to pass up on a shot that somebody else might be like, whoa, I get to shoot an animal. He was looking at a herd and he was looking at an ecosystem. And I, I found myself just feeling settled knowing that that was the way he was watching this. It would be accurate to look at a thriving local population of large mammals and say, there is a great hunter. 
mm-hmm. and you're not pointing at the dude with the rifle. And, you know, we're going to get into some abstract territory here, but my hope is that as we sort of, you know, say something and say it again, it becomes clear that there are ways to think in the same way that there are ways to move. And if you were to look at someone trying to dance for the first time, trying to do the East Coast swing for the first time versus someone who's done it for a long time, they're both moving, but they're not moving in the same way. And the instructor might come and say, okay, do that same stuff, but originate with your hip and then translate that that motion, that power down your leg and up to your side. And when they're talking about moving, there's a different sequence, a different what you move first, second, third, fourth. In a worldview, when you're answering the who is there, what is there, when did it get there, why, who, what, when, where is it, and then mm-hmm. how, what you see first is extremely significant. And part of the reason that this podcast has become so difficult is a lot of people are nihilistic about human nature. And we go— For some good reasons. I can, I can, I can, I can empathize. Tell me why. <laughs> oh, I, I think it's easier to write off humanity and there being a purpose for humanity— because it, it feels like the quick solution to pain and darkness and what seems to be randomness that people make decisions with. And a lot of people do just react, and that is very random. So I can, I can empathize with people that want to be very nihilistic of like, yeah, we, we're just here, we're just an accident, this is just a blip in history, and we're all going to be stardust someday. Like, I can empathize with that because it seems like a form of relief. It seems like an answer. It's not really, but it definitely feels like a relief valve. For sure. I think the other place that can, you know, the the territory gets fuzzy is that people express their humanity in different ways. We're, uh, you know, we're, again, I feel like I'm jumping into the territory ahead of us. But when I go, we're given a, oh man, the Bible has a really interesting template uh, for the, the kind of being it says a human is, but people do that differently. And so it becomes hard. I'll use something we talk about on this podcast all the time. We're always talking about Kranzberg's laws of technology, that it's neither positive nor negative nor neutral. And people go, yeah, there's good things and bad things about being able to listen to podcasts all the time and leave the conversation there. And I kind of want to go... I think we can know a lot more before the ground gives out about how much information it's good for the being that mm-hmm. is human to have access to. And we're making claims about a way to live as a young man. It's going to have a novelty. There's a way we're going to do it that's never been seen before. But we're making claims about the body and the soul and the spirit and the, what they should do. And that's very anthropological of what is a person. What does it mean to be a human? How, how much can we know about that before we aren't able to know anymore? Today, you know, what I really want to talk about in the beginning is the background. And you got into this right away. But we have a way of seeing the world. If it's not explicit, if we haven't read, uh, we are, we're importing what we think human beings are. 
And the reason you know that is because actually you see that in disagreements. Let's go hot button. You're scrolling through your social media feed and you see an officer involved shooting and you see people not agreeing with each other on <laughs> what happened anything and what should be done, anything. Yeah. And they really do have a different understanding of what a human being is. How free is a person? Mm. That's a very interesting question. Let's go on another one. Abortion is not only an anthropological problem, but it's a very anthropological problem of what's a person? And the argument has been going on there a long time. Mm -hmm. Even, I mean, before it was possible to widely apply abortion, before you could see a fetus, there's a really interesting book that I've mentioned before called The History of the Unborn that goes, oh, but the question about the ways that unborn kids have played into musing on what is a person, that goes back to the to the Greeks and beyond and to, you know, Central Asia where people would have conversations about what's going on in a woman's body and then what would that tell us about what a human being is. There's so many interesting things that revolve around what you think a person is. Uh, and, you know, you see someone throw up a terrible Instagram post. How you respond is going to be really informed by how you think people change. And how you think people change needs to ultimately be based on what kind of thing you think a human being is. One of the things we've read, written up on the board for a while is uh, the, a podcast on propaganda. And this isn't that, but there are a, some similar threads. And, and the propaganda podcast we're going to be doing is, it's kind of connected to my push for English majors these days, being like, but you got a degree in English, maybe you're really good at analyzing poetry, but probably you've been studying story, which means you're actually getting a marketing degree because everyone is telling you a story. And if you're not aware of it, you are probably buying into someone else's story about value and intention. And that's where this one has some crossover. If you do not have an understanding, if you're not curious about what's going on underneath the surface and the ways that you respond to other people, particularly after the podcast we just did with Dan on glory of like, when you see someone else, are you curious? Are you amazed? Are, are you treating them with dignity? Dan has a very particular way of understanding what human beings are for and how we are meant to interact. And so you listen to him going like, wow, I wish I had that wonder. It's like what well, you can if you have his way of understanding. And if you don't, are you curious as to why you have yours? So that's just a little connection to a different thing we'll be end up doing. But I'm aware of that in this moment of like, if, yes. you're, if you're going, oh man, here we go. Blaine's going to just drop some knowledge on me and listening. I would be like, wait, 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 wait. Be very curious about what might be under the surface and, and that someone else may be telling you a story you're buying into if you haven't at least vaguely understood the story yourself. So good. If you want to read a really interesting study, uh, and I think interesting for most people, the National Center for Biotechnology has this report, Unconscious Learning Processes, and it's a review, so it's not a study in and of itself. It just is a summary of the relevant literature. Uh, it's kind of old now, but what's so significant, it, you know, we're coming to the table going, 
we are all fish immersed in an environment, and that environment penetrates us. And if you saw disgusting water uh, and you were about to take a swim, you might go, no. And if someone asked, I think I would, I would have to say, you know, the reason I don't want to put weird lotions on my skin is because I wouldn't eat that weird lotion. Like, I think it's going to, your wife has been helpful in exposing to me that, like, what you put on your body is going to enter your body. Like, if I were to go for a swim, I think I'm like, that, I don't want that water to somehow permeate me and to go, culture, civilization, we live in an environment that penetrates us, this, you know, unconscious learning processes. What it sort of indicates is that the way that people learn facts isn't directly linked to their consciousness. So you would think uh, you believe what you remember reading or having a conversation about, and it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, we don't even know to a large extent how we absorb information and you know the amount that we hear versus what our sum total of our being presents to our consciousness. Okay, hang on. There was this... I don't know if it was a Netflix or a YouTube on the mind. And this guy was demonstrating how subconsciously we get informed by things. And so he's having this marketing guy come to create a proposal for his fake company. And what this guy does is he sets certain things along the taxi route that the guy's going to be taking. He's got kids playing with balloons. He's got like all of these things. And he has done a mock-up of what he thinks the marketer is going to draw based on the things he put in his path that are not obvious, that are very uh, peripheral. It was spooky how close he was able to guess by actually influencing the man's environment rather than presenting him with ideas about the company itself. Like those direct sentences had very little to do with what he tried to present. It was back to that water. He was able to influence the water around him for about 30 minutes and completely change the trajectory this guy chose. So, yeah, scary. Bust out your tinfoil hats. Bust <laughs> And people familiar with the conversation here go, right, and you can't quite know how you're being influenced. I go, well, we can know, before we get to that moment, we can know a lot more. Uh, and, there, you know, we might hit what you could call an event horizon, the point beyond which you don't know. What's going to happen? No, it's just on a black hole. I remember from Interstellar <laughs> when I got my degree in astrophysics. That's, yes, near a black hole, there's an event horizon, but there are multiple event horizons. Why did it feel like you gave me a gold star? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Jeez. All right, okay. take me back into philosophical anthropology. Okay, well, I want to say one other thing on influence. Um, some of the best neuroscience labs currently in the country, do you want to guess where they are? Oh, I, I'm worried. Facebook, Google, and Amazon. Yeah. And I was going to say the FBI. Do you know, did you know that there's a discipline called neuromarketing? Uh, that there's... I wish there wasn't. Bioeconomics. If you were looking around in 2012, way back in the day, you might have seen this thing happen that is still going on, but part of the user agreement on Facebook... Page 240. But it classically used to be that you like submit your account for data analysis, yeah, testing, research, right. right? Where you go, you can do whatever. And so you want to read a real interesting report, uh, Experimental Evidence of Massive Scale Emotional Contagion. 
Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. I, I do need to go get my tinfoil. Okay. Well, this is how it works. Uh, f- what Facebook did, because they're allowed to, is they took just under 700,000 accounts and they go, okay, in the feed of some of these, we're going to do positive language, we're going to do positive words, and the other we're going to do negative. And at the end of a week, we're going to review sort of everything we can about user behavior and see what we've affected. Um, can you imagine being those study, you know, the person who designed that study just going, blind learning, man, we don't know what we're going to see. Isn't this crazy? And I'm like, oh, there were a lot of ethics things that popped up of, are you allowed to do that to people? It's like, you're allowed to do that with people if they say, sure, do whatever. So predictably, people who were shown negative messages at the end of a week were posting negative emotions. Uh, People who saw positive messages were reporting positive emotions. And people who were shown neutral messages stopped using Facebook. What? So, oh, that one's actually interesting. Isn't that interesting? One of the big illusions that's helpful to break down is this idea that we are a rational, autonomous being. We're going to get to that, but it just goes, oh, no, we're emotional, desiring beings. We are beings. We're going to get to that. Uh, and go, but it's so fascinating that you're like, really? The kind of creature you are made in the image of God is predominantly pro- not programmed. I would not agree that we're programmed that way. I would say we are. It is just true to our nature that we respond to emotional things. Uh, we're like more emotional beings than we are thinking beings. And it's kind of interesting to go, well, one piece of av- evidence is if Facebook takes away emotion, people stop. What it was is uh, I didn't see anything on user time. It was how many characters they typed in plummeted. So how much they said about themselves and how much they responded to others went way, way down. There is a background. And so here, a little bit, uh, we're going to kind of go into what is the background. And some of this you might go, really? No, that's just what they think in the ivory towers of knowledge. And I'm like, no. I'm telling you, man, this stuff gets out there. Down to the roots of human beings' existence. For the 11 of you still listening, you're going to get a college degree at the end of this. Thank you. We actually have a certificate still being we can send here. you. We're going to come up with a fancy title, but you have earned a certificate in cultural studies. Let me just say, this one, put on your jargon hat, and then in the next one, we'll try to tell more of a story and make it more interesting because all of this is extremely abstract. It kind of goes into the ways ideas transmit and the fact that there is such a thing as a worldview and that you can form it. What we're about to say, we're going to go, here's the story that, that most of the West is telling. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think that if you took this story to a person in a coffee shop and said, hey, do you think this is what's going on? Nine people out of ten would go, yeah. Uh, And then it would be really interesting to go, okay, well, what if you took a different story and was like, what do you think about this to most followers of Jesus? Uh, And if they went, you know, if you took the story as I think the Bible sets it out and you held it out to most followers of Jesus and went, is this what's going on? I'm alarmed that a lot of them would go, oh, no, 
no, that's not that's not what makes up God's universe. And they'd be like, oh, if you think that, how can you operate effectively in God's universe? Francis Crick, a Nobel Prize winning dude, he raised his hand and said, <laughs> here comes the jargon. I'm going to give you the word first, and then we're going to go underneath it. Mm. Um, this is a, a wonderful time to get to use the word epiphenomena, epiphenomena. That's why they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. Epiphenomenal. Coming up um, with new words. Which you can just like swap that word with illusion. Uh, and go, he said, what if everything literally that we the first see, time I've heard that word in my whole life. Epiphenomena. Epiphenomenal. Great. You haven't, maybe you haven't heard the word, but I have heard you in different conversations argue the concept. And he said, what if all of what we see is actually just like uh, the emergent byproduct of stuff happening in the brain? that you can reduce things down to their constituent parts. Um, because what we're trying to do here about mm. reality is, is answer what the rhetorician in me, who loves Kenneth Burke, wants to call the dramatistic pentad, which was his fancy way of going, who, what, where, when, why. And what is the basic unit? That's been a question for everybody of, mm-hmm. you know, is a person a real unit? like a complete, discrete entity. Or, if you're Francis Crick, can you kind of like break it down and is a human largely the visible part of a lot of underlying processes? Mm. And what we need to say in this episode is the first thing that we need to challenge if we're going to make any headway is that what Dallas Willard says, (laughs) if you look closely at the world's story, it can really be reduced to Particles and motion. What Mm -hmm. you really have is just particles. We don't know quite what they are. Mm -hmm. The best model that we have right now is a quantum froth. Uh, And actually, that's probably not the best model because I'm not a physicist. But even though I'm not a physicist, if you're like, yep, it's just kind of small things moving, I would go, yeah, I think that is, that's the model of reality that I think is accurate or true, whatever that would mean. And For us dumb folks out there, action and reaction, that there is a system in place of particles, they're going to bump into each other, they're going to have certain results, and guess what? If you think you're special, you're just a slightly larger grouping of particles who are going to bump into other particles and have a certain way of reacting. Totally. Just stuff bumping around. Or, you know, <laughs> you're into the, mi- the gut microbiome. There are bacteria and stuff. I wish I wasn't. It's a different story, guys. You are. Your house looks like a meth lab, but it's a meth lab of food. Yeah. Pickling everywhere. Pickling, lacto-fermenting. Nobody email me about this. Okay. Email Sam. Just kidding. Don't. In your gut, there are little organisms, and they they can... leverage the fact that your body is influenced by... Okay, I mean, it's kind of interesting. They call it your second brain. Right? Explain what it is. Well, uh, they actually are... What you have been cultivating in your gut wants more of what's going to keep it alive. And so it is going to send signals to your brain to provide it with the food that it needs, which is why your super crunchy uncle wants more goji berries and crazy food and you're like no I want a hamburger and french fries it's not because you are an unhealthy person and, and he's a weirdo he may be a weirdo but so are you what 
part of what's going on at least is that there is a microbiome that's telling your brain what to feed it. And so, you know, it's kind of freaky stuff, but you can starve out the bad that's trying to feed it fat and sugar and replace it with that you actually desire healthy food. It's weird, but you know, nobody email me about this. Right. I, so, (laughs) and the story there is people then go, oh, well then what's a human will? We're all being controlled. People have done this really since, uh, sort of the advent of psychology where the early Jungians and Freuds were watching hypnosis and going, oh, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't get too deep into that uh, because it's ultimately not an epistemology podcast. It's trying to frame a worldview and go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how deep down the rabbit hole we are. <laughs> it's a bit like, have you guys seen someone rock climb? It's called a chimney move where you like have your back against one wall and your feet against the other because it's too deep. If you like let go of the, the pressure, you'll just fall all the way down. We're, we're trying to uh, keep this position without plummeting all the way down into the depths of this rabbit hole. You're welcome. This is not all the way down. I forgot that I wanted to frame part of this with a wonderful quote by the sociologist Christian Smith. Every social theory and philosophy has some structuring framework, guiding metaphor, or thematic reference that organizes how it describes and explains reality. Mm. Um, Man, there's so... I think that's such... Inaccurate statement. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. The secular world is maybe more aware of this than, than the Christian world. Uh, I have a friend from college who sent me a New York Times article written in the last four months that was that human beings need stories to keep themselves alive, to frame their behavior and their their purpose for existing. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. you guys, the secular world is aware that you are living out a story. Why are we going to pretend like we are not living out a story, living out a narrative? So, yes, we need something to frame ourselves. Particles and motion. That's, you know, the telling of this podcast is um, we're going to end just try to show how deeply that has shaped the West. And not just, not just since the discovery of the gut microbiome, um, not just since the discovery of permeable selves and... The fact that, you know, if you zoom in far enough on the edge of a person, it's there's no clean dividing line between a person and their environment, right? Like your edge under a microscope would look more like the edge of a continent. No, don't say you know. I have no idea. What? Stop. Well, just go. <laughs> we no, we just fell all the way down the rabbit hole. We fell down. So let's back up. Um, <laughs> I look to... like a continent under a microscope. Uh, Mark Sayers? His microscope zoom in. It would look so big. You lo- <laughs> if we were looking at you at a microscope, you would look huge. <laughs> that's, that's my takeaway. Uh, some version of this in the humanist tr- tradition has existed for a very long time. Cicero thought that the world could be reduced to atoms, these tiny units. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Sayers... Writer, Australian pastor, cultural commentator, brilliant dude. I would. I just. Why does I, he sound familiar? Uh, he is on the podcast This Cultural Moment. Oh, and he is probably doing a better job explaining this than we are. He he does a very good job talking about this, but you know one of the things that he talks about is that secularism 
is a salvation narrative. It takes right. the pattern of creation, fall, redemption, and just and presents the human soul with its own iteration. Right, which is something I so appreciate about um, the larger story talk and that just to name every narrative is going to be stealing from the gospel because you need to present some trajectory and some end and some purpose for humanity. Exactly. Even, even if it's shopping, who cares? It still needs to feel epic. It's interesting in its own right to go, human beings are fundamentally motivated by that story. Yeah. Why? So he, and he talks about, around the same time as that Facebook thing happened, a Pulitzer Prize winning book came out, Stephen oh, Greenblatt, The Swerve. a bunch of other words like epiperipheral. And- <laughs> that would be, that probably does exist. Uh, no, it was a book about how the Renaissance happened, and Mark Sayers, talking about this book, uh, goes, the word Renaissance means revival, mm. <laughs> and the Renaissance is the secular revival where he tells this, Stephen Greenblatt in his book tells the story of, you know, Bracciolini, this uh, 1400s, you know, guy who works for the Pope, and he lo- he goes around, he finds books, but he's not, you know, he's he's the classic millennial living in the 1400s where he doesn't really buy in to the Christian story, and he's in a whatever somewhere, <laughs> he's wherever he is, and he finds a copy of Lucretius, classic Greek text on the nature of things, where Lucretius goes, it's just atoms. A person isn't the basic unit of reality. The basic unit of reality is... It's just atoms, and therefore there's not real good and evil. Let's just try to get along as easily, best as we can. And some version of that story, you know, pops up over and over again in going, this is what, this is what reality just is. And a human being, oh, how can you even know what a human being is when, you know, if someone walks by you, they're trailing a microbiome, and they can jump on you and begin influencing you after they're gone. Actually, that's, that's tr- true. Don't email me. <laughs> uh, it is true. And why I wanted to get really jargony in this podcast was to go, the world's story, the story out there is still some version of like particles and motion. And we, I think that there's something very appealing for an unknown reason about the sort of magic of quantum physics as easily uh, confirmed in the final installment of the first Avengers arc. Ah, it's just, you know, it's good storytelling. Where was it, you know, Ant-Man is like, you can't just put quantum in front of something. It's <laughs> <laughs> quantum everything. Uh, but he's breaking like, the fourth I wall. I just love it. He totally calls what people are going to make fun of. Let me just jump in here as well. So breaking the fourth wall, just like Ant-Man did, aware that some of these words, concepts can feel um, a little over our heads, a little bit like, why are we looking so closely at this? I do want to reflect back on if you are not aware of the story that you are telling yourself, if your story about why human beings have purpose and what human beings are for, you are going to be unintentionally buying into someone else's story for you. You've made it this far. This is going to be a series. Um, There's some really good reasons to be thinking about this stuff. 
that is a great ending. The only other thing I want to do is kind of signal some of the territory ahead. One one of the things that we're going to do that we need to do first is talk about the ways that uh, knowledge interacts with reality, the sum total of what exists. That's an important thing to have in hand. Uh, the next thing that we need to point to is, given our current picture of uh, what do you do about the fact that there is a microbiome? What do you do about the fact that this, you know, this concept of per- that cells are permeable? And I want to go, there are actually some very cool uh, ways that are additive to look at that reality and then still accept that a human being is a discrete being. We're going we're gonna to hit those two points. Uh, and then we're going to tell a little bit of the really fascinating story of how some communists in Europe ended up influencing 200 years of how people think about themselves. And then we're going to really jump into what the Hebrews, the biblical audience of the time, thought humans were. Because we'll say this again and again when you're reading the Bible— the revelation of the Bible doesn't exist apart from the specificness, the, the quirks of the writers. It exists, God reveals himself through the humanity of the writers. And so getting in and going, they held some really interesting assumptions about who humans were, what it meant to be a person, and how people could either converge towards their humanity or how deeply human beings could depart humanity mm-hmm. and in some significant way lose it. So all of that is ahead. Buckle up. Buckle up.